Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, December 22nd, 2018. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. This is the last show for 2018. I stuffed up my calendar a little bit. It was only a week ago that I recorded the UK-friendly time, but given the calibre of guests we have on already this evening, it's going to be a very nice show. I wanted to start off with the gentleman who has reintroduced me to tomatoes and mayonnaise and a little pepper on a sandwich. Rafter Blazy, you haven't called in since we had a caller who, or actually a listener who requested that each new caller participant of the past, I don't know how many, three months now, introduce their model railroading hobby. So for folks listening in, how would you introduce yourself to the model rail radio audience? Uh, I would introduce myself in that I am a prototype modeler of the Lehigh Valley Railroad. Uh, I have a basement size layout that is 24 by 40 feet, L-shaped, and I model the LV in July of 1975. Although I do have plans to backdate some of the operating sessions when I get around to it to the mid-60s. So I recall that you were having a photographer come and photograph your layout for a particular magazine. Am I correct in recalling that? You are correct in uh, recalling that. The Saturday before Thanksgiving, Railroad Model Craftsman sent out a uh, contract photographer, Fred Lagno, and he spent a good part of the day here photographing uh, the layout in the basement for a future article in RMC. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, if ever there were a publication that you deserve to be in, it's certainly RMC. In terms of your layout, what kind of stuff did you have to get ready for this photographing? What kind of stuff have you been working on in the last few weeks before the photographer arrived? Cleaning the basement and cleaning the layout. That right. was, you know, getting all the loose stuff that was on there. And uh, we had started, me and my friend Joe Uber had started a major expansion of the uh, Coxon staging yard at the west end of the railroad, adding three tracks. So the basement was a disaster. Mm. And that's in kind. And I needed a good three weeks to put it together. Actually, I had to wait until I got it cleaned up before I set the appointment up. Mm. So, but I managed to do it, finish a week before. Reached out to the photographer. He said, let's get it done now. RMC seems to be pretty interested in the article. So I said, all right, I'm game. Let's get it done before the holidays start and makes everybody's schedule a lot better. Wonderful. Wonderful. So do you get a sense of when the article is coming out? I do not have a sense. or Well, I can't tell you when it's coming out, but I got the impression they wanted to get it into production pretty quickly because they were pretty anxious for the photographs and the text that I sent them and the track plan. So, you know, like I say, I have no idea of the inventory that they have. Mm-hmm. And this was strictly a result of Stephen Priest's uh, October editorial where he reached out to people and says, hey, you know, we'd like to put layouts in the magazine, but they're entirely uh, come from, you know, people that, you know, read the magazine. We don't go out, you know, unless we hear of something. And so I responded and sent him some test shots and he was very impressed with the test shots. And I says, I can only do small stuff. I don't have the lights. I have a DSLR, but mm-hmm. I don't have all the lights and probably the photographic skill to be able to pull that off. So he said, well, we can send somebody out. I said, do it. I was just surprised how quickly this all came together mm. um, because I think I, I think I initially sent out the uh, feeler probably <laughs> mid-October. 
Interesting. Interesting. Exciting times on your lap. Did you discover anything while you were cleaning? No, I was uh, waiting to see if I would come across any pumpkins that KB Zhang and Lou Papineau had hidden uh-huh. uh, a number of years ago during an open house when they visited, but I did not discover any of them. I'm pretty sure I uh, cleansed the layout of the pumpkin infestation. Very good. Very good. You can never have pumpkins on the layout, particularly after multiple years. They start to smell, I hear, at least. So interesting stuff. So in terms of now it's been photographed, you have to do the ritualistic task of changing it up sufficiently that it is a completely different layout for anyone that would visit in the future. What kind of things are you going to be adding? What, is, what stuff are you going to be working on in the near future on your layout? Well, what I want to do, I had suffered a bit of layout burnout, so I haven't been working on the layout for about a year. Mm. I've been mainly working at the bench weathering and working on freight cars and locomotives, but I really just want to move forward with the scenery on the areas of the layout that are not scenic Mm. and finish some of the stuff up in the areas that are scenic. That's pretty much what I'm planning on doing. And are you going to use any new techniques or anything like that? Are you... Moving into different areas of scenery that well, you haven't used historically? I want to get more extensive uh, uh, coverage with static grass. Uh, I have an, I'm in the process of putting together a clinic on st- using static grass, mm. and I have four or five different static grass tools that I've purchased. And I want to try each and every one of them. And I had ordered a number of uh, um, some static grass products from a company over in the uk mm-hmm. uh, i think it's world war phoenix or something like that if i got the name correct and i'm anxious to try that stuff and get and blend that in uh with in areas where i don't have it where i have ground foam and what you know kind of change up the texture a bit mm. one of the fellows who paints figures for me locally has just acquired a, a static grass by what are they it's the application. It's the it's the application Applicator. tool, whatever one calls it, the static adding thing that the glue. And he said that there was a, a backlog for that particular company. I'm not sure what publicity they've done recently, but they seem to be selling a lot of the things and can't keep up with demand. So I'm interested in hearing your review when it arrives, um, associated with because I mean I guess the history of static grass application has diverge from you know homemade things that produce a little bit of static electricity with i guess they're some kind of plastic wand or what have you i mean there are so many different techniques associated with applying static grass how many different machines do you have well let's see uh what's the original one that came out the uh, oh forget the uh, um getting a brain fart here uh, the, uh knock i guess it mm-hmm. was that came out with the uh grass Grassmaster or whatever the heck that was called. And then I purchased another one. Uh, I can't remember the name of that. Uh, I purchased one from this World uh, World War Scenics. Mm -hmm. Uh, My buddy Larry Eggering made me one of those homemade ones. Oh, very nice. uh, Which is nice because it's uh, it's made with one of those strainers. Mm -hmm. So that's more, you know, some of these things like the knock one have a very high vertical uh, component to it, which makes it tough in some of the areas where I have two decks where I can mm. just barely get the grass tool in there. So the the one that uh, Larry made me is pretty powerful, and <laughs> I will tell you that it packs a punch because I accidentally touched it when I shouldn't have touched it, and I mm. got myself a bit of a shock on there. Thank God I didn't go into you know defib, but uh, you know I I am careful when I use that one. The other the commercial ones don't seem to be as bad, um, but 
you know, I'm anxious, like I say, I'm anxious to try all of them and with the different products. And uh, uh, I learned a lot, you know, from visiting this company in the, uh, in the UK where they talk about putting a short uh, two millimeter, what they call basing grass. Mm-hmm. They have a, a spray that you put on top of it. And then that causes additional longer fibers to stand up on top of that. So you're kind of building it up. I've never tried to do static grass on top of static grass yet. That that's going to be a new technique to, for me to master. Mm. I think we talked about maybe six years ago on Model Rail Radio, very early, you know, use of the technique, and it's become more and more popular, and certainly with the Toy Soldier fraternity, the painters thereof, yeah, they use techniques like this as well in order to get more realistic grass. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of exciting stuff, a lot of shocking and exciting stuff coming up in your future, <laughs> So obviously the uh, the dreaded season is coming up. So uh, get yeah. in what you can do before uh, before it starts. But uh, yeah, all the I've best. got three weekend. I got three weekends ahead of me, and then they're all taken. Well, at least my Saturdays are all taken till April. Very good, very good. My aim is to get to the East Coast sometime in the next couple of years and explicitly, decidedly work out some way that we can actually see one another. Because I think the past two trips that I've made to your part of the world. I think you've had family commitments of one kind or another on those weekends, but yeah, I'm, one. I think I was down in Disney when you were here. The, your last long ah, trip. Okay, okay. So, okay. well, we'll need to work something out next time I'm in your part of the world. Alternatively, <laughs> as New Jersey becomes more and more like California, maybe you might come over to California and have a visit at some stage. So. There you go. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, Ralph. Thank you very much for calling in, Tom. It was very nice talking to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. Merry Christmas to you too. I'd like to welcome a gentleman who, when I reflected on the year past, one of the nicest experiences I had through the year was the O-Scale National Convention. Terry Terrence is a gentleman who posted associated with the O-Scale National this year. I'm not sure we've had a chance to talk since we met at the O-Scale National. Have you had a chance to call in since then, or have you just been exhausted? No, no. No, I've I've been sort of burned out, and uh, I'm just just recovering now. Very good. Well, <laughs> from I, the end of August, the formalities here are: a new listener requested that all callers, such as yourself, reintroduce yourself in the model railroading hobby. Terry Terrence, how would you introduce yourself to a new listener? Uh, let's see. I am a longtime O scaler. Do a number of <laughs> clinics. Have been trying to promote 3D printing and microcontrollers within the model railroading community, trying to drag us kicking and screaming into the 21st century with limited success. Um, I have a uh, basement layout that's based on the Baltimore, Ohio, in West Virginia, the um, uh, Cheat River uh, with Cranberry and um, Cheat River grades in the O-Scale 2 rail, of course. What else is there to say, Tom? I think, I mean, certainly you've been someone in the hobby that has always been uh, your head above, you know, the standard model railroading stuff, finding new stuff in the hobby that interests you. And I think with 3D printing in particular, but also Arduinos and, you know, the various microcontrollers that you've championed. Uh, I, I know you were, you were anti-Arduino for a period of time, so maybe I stated that wrong, but various microcontrollers, a wide variety of different bits and pieces 
But for me, um, going to the O-Scale National, meeting a number of folk like Dave Vaughan, a number of the names, basically, in the O-Scale two-rail community, I got such an amazing insight, actually, on the layout tours. That, for me, was an interesting... The extremes of O-Scale are really, really very present for me on those layout tours, from <laughs> very thin... I don't know how one would call it. I, I had almost like a World War One trench situation in a couple of those layouts where I was kind of weaving my way through, doubling back on myself, you know, various things, versus actual reasonable-sized basements where people are, you know, running track around uh, the outside and there's plenty of operating space. The breadth of layouts that you covered in the uh, O-Scale National Prospectus, the number of folk that I visited, changed my perspective with regards to O-Scale. How do you recommend people approach the scale in terms of use of space? Well, if they look at the uh, videos I've posted on YouTube, you can do O-Scale from a shelf layout of very limited size up through the largest basement you can conceive of uh, and everything in between. Okay, you do not need a aircraft hangar size space to run O scale. You can do it on a couple of desktops if you wish. Now, you're not going to be able to run Union Pacific Big Boys in that space, but uh, you can do it. You can do O scale in a very modest space. And there's plenty of equipment available in O scale. You just have to know where to look. You're not going to find it down at your local hobby shop unless you're willing to convert three-rail equipment. There's plenty of scale-sized and detailed three-rail equipment right now that you can convert to two-rail. Uh, but there are plenty of suppliers out there. As you probably saw on the layout tours, we had 19th-century modelers who can get everything they need to model uh, the 1800s, uh, we have plenty of transition era models. It's always popular. And we have modern modelers. So you can get everything you need in O scale. You just have to uh, work a little bit at it, a little bit more than you would in, say, HO. And the reward of O scale is you can work on things that aren't fiddly. So you don't have to do fly surgery every time you want to detail a car or a locomotive. What else can I say, Tom? <laughs> Which layouts did you go see? I, uh, from your your description of snaking through one layout, I know which one that is. Oh, no. Actually, it's interesting. Well, you, see? you see, I mean, I look at Dave Vaughan's layout, and I've got to say, out of the people at the show, Dave welcomed me. Unlike any, I mean, it was actually quite a moving experience going to his layout because he had Tony Costa. Tony and I were there at the same time. He stopped everything. And he made sure that Michelle and I were introduced to every aspect of the layout. He just kind of pushed Tony Costa aside and gave me a, a detailed introduction to his layout. It was really an overwhelming experience. But I saw a number of layouts where the... The aisle width, there seems to be a fight within O-Scale associated with what the correct aisle width should be. And it's really very interesting. The layouts that I preferred tended to have bigger aisle spaces, or at least a consideration for the fact that there would be operators moving. Dave Vaughan has a couple of kind of tight places and a few places of leisurely 
space. But yeah, there was, and it wasn't just one, unfortunately. <laughs> there were a couple of layouts where I thought to myself, this is really very, very claustrophobic. And it's actually quite an interesting experience to go into these layouts because you get a sense that these are single person operations with relatively large basements. But they, as soon as there are two or three people there, it really is a very interesting movement relationship between these things. And I think what I found through going to the Oscar National and going to these various layouts was that each layout owner had a completely different set of Gibbons and Druthers, irrespective of prototype, irrespective of whether they wanted to run passenger trains, irrespective of a variety of things. The way in which they constructed the layouts were all so diverse and all so interesting. And I found that particularly fascinating, having seen, you know, tens of HO layouts and, you know, half a dozen N-scale layouts through doing broader layout tours, that O-scale has very interesting uh, practitioners in terms of the use of space and in terms of how they consider operating and just general movement. And that was something that I wasn't expecting. Well, everyone in any scale tries to put in as much railroad in their basement as they can get. With O-scale, however, that usually winds up being broader curves and uh, wider spacing between parallel tracks. So, yes, space can get tight very quickly. Now, in the case of Dave Vaughn, and for the people who don't know Dave, I'm going to explain. Dave has constructed a very long, narrow layout by expanding his basement twice, but he has salvaged parts of other people's layouts yes and so therefore he was constrained to using the geometry of other people's layouts so he has part of john armstrong's layout mm. part of uh an earlier layout from ed repay and ted stepic amongst others and with just enough connective tissue to put them all together yes. and it's three layers high in some spots and as you point out, the eyeways are very narrow. But um, <laughs> it wasn't the narrowest uh, that I saw, though. It was actually quite mid-range compared to some of the uh, extremes. And I think it, they were in the two that I remember were in Virginia townships. I can't think of the uh, the gentlemen's names that hosted them. But one in particular was really, and he had the uh, <laughs> he had the World War One trench design, like stepping around, so everything was basically at eye level. Unless there was one point where you had to lean backwards, move through a 45-degree angle, and then look upwards, and then you saw a particularly vibrant part of the layout, and then you kind of reconnected yourself and moved back through. But there were some pretty extreme space constraint uh, applications through that, and I thought it was quite interesting to see the folks in, in contrast. There was a gentleman whose name I got, in fact, I have his card somewhere, who has a basement with the same footprint as my own basement. And that really struck me because that was an ideal use of space. I could see it actually in my basement because the floor plan was almost identical. And that layout out of all of them, which was a very simple layout, didn't really, you know, I was there with Jim Lincoln and a few other folk, and I don't think anyone, you know, raised an eyebrow that this was a particularly inspiring layout from their perspective. But from my perspective, to see the space utilization and just the real sensitivity to how this layout was supposed to be used really ticked a box in my mind. And certainly I took the track plan. I had a variety of different notes on the gentleman's card. Um, and that was allowed for me that really resounded with the space. Anyway, I'll let you continue. Yeah. Here. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, you know, I, I encourage people and I 
I don't know how much headway I've made with this, but I encourage people to give O-Scale a look, okay, especially as we all age and our eyes aren't what they used to be and our manual skills aren't what they used to be. O-Scale, you can start off small, very modest, uh, even if it's just a module or two somewhere. Give it a shot. You might find up liking, find out that you like it. And I certainly do. It's been a lifetime uh, avocation for me. So, you know, give it a shot. Now, we are as a follow-up to this year's O-Scale National. Next year is going to be very much nearer you, Tom. It's going to be uh, held in conjunction with the O-Scale West meet, which I believe is in May of 2019. So for those of you on the West Coast, go to the next national convention. See what O-Scale has to offer. I was mm-hmm. interested in that because I don't know what local O-Scale is like. and I think it's in Santa Clara. It's very local to me. But mm-hmm. uh, in fact, if you need a place to stay, Terry, let me know because certainly you'd be more than welcome to stay here. But O-Scale in this part of the world, I've not actually seen any layouts in this part of the world that are O-Scale. So I'm interested in the layout tour of that one just to get a sense of who is here in the broader Bay Area, I'm sure it'll go to Sacramento and might go, you know, further south, Monterey, what have you. But I'm really interested in finding out what, uh, you know, what local outs are available. Because for me, O-Scale locally is a completely unknown quantity. Well, you see, most O-Scalers are not joiners. Uh, we didn't realize, I mean, I knew of a lot of good O-Scale layouts in the Washington area. We wound up with 32 layouts on the tour which is a surprising number, uh, considering that O-Scale is a minority scale. And there are a lot around you. I believe the O-Scale uh, West guys have lined up something like 25, 28 mm. layouts. So there'll be plenty for you to see Wonderful. at the O-Scale National uh, this coming year. Now, the other thing, the train of thought I lost was uh, the 2018 O-Scale National website will be up till march when the website comes up for renewal i encourage people to go there we have a lot of the clinics posted Mm. so you can look at the clinics including ones on how to convert three rail equipment to two rail there are some great great pictures in those clinics um there's a, a relatively young guy in his 30s um uh dave friedlander who's an excellent modeler and a great powerpoint wrangler and his clinic slides are up there and they are excellent excellent slides uh jim lincoln i believe Mm -hmm. his clinic is up there so you can learn about proto 48 uh so i encourage you to go there now we're also trying to breed some new life into the old scale kings organization Mm. Uh, probably including changing the name because, as some, as Dave Vaughn pointed out, <laughs> no one today remembers O Scale when it was the King of Scales. Mm. So uh, the name has to go. But uh, that website will be uh, undergoing some changes, and I encourage people don't go there right away because it's still the same old website that it used to be. But uh, one of the people behind the convention this year has assumed the leadership of the O-Scale Kings, and we're going to be working to change that website into something useful. 
mm. uh, right, right now, except for O-scale meats, uh, it, it doesn't have much good information there. And speaking of, there are O-scale organizations and meats in all parts of the country. And this is something I learned in conjunction with doing the convention. I went down to the Dallas area. Mm. And met with the Southwest O-Scalers. Bruce Blackwood went out to O-Scale West this year, 2018, and met with those guys. Uh, We went to Milwaukee. There are O-Scale groups in New England Mm. on the East Coast. Of course, the East Coast is a little more concentrated because O-Scale being an older scale, a lot of the longtime O-Scale modelers are here. But... Mm. There's plenty of O-scale out in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some plenty of O-scale layouts in the Midwest. In fact, that's going to be a subject, of I hope, of my next video is to get a few more in the Midwest. And there are a couple in the uh, videos I've already done and uh, in the mountain states as well. Uh, there, there's a lot of narrow-gauge guys and mm-hmm. OM3, OM30 is very, very popular. Uh, but there are also some very, very good standard gauge guys as well. So there's, there's O scale all over, but you do have to ferret it out. Good to know. And of course, O scale is international. I mean, the UK has a huge O scale contingent. Uh, and we have callers, I know folks in Australia that, that dabble in O. So, I mean, I think O scale has an international contingent as well. I mean, in the UK, as you probably well know, Terry, they're pretty obsessive about their O scale. Well, the, the thing is, I think I did a, in, in my clinic, which I did on the state of O scale, I had all of the various scales and gauges that go under the umbrella of O. So in the UK, it can be 1 to 43.5. In the US, it's 1 to 48. Mm. Uh, you know, 7 millimeters to the foot, 1764 <laughs> inch to the foot. There are so many combinations that have been used now obviously seven millimeter to the foot quarter inch to the foot are the predominant ones now but that wasn't always the case in o Mm. and so if you if the error in the o scale track gauge bothers you you can go to 1764th's o Mm. almost no one works in that anymore but it was done in the past or you can go to seven millimeter to the foot. Mm-hmm. Oh, your ratio changes, but your track gauge is now correct. <laughs> so there's all sorts of options. And of course, this Proto 48, where a lot of high end modelers are operating right now. So there are so many options to O, and that's it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a bad <laughs> thing because, because you have, uh, a fractioning of the community, uh, especially when you can't agree on, you know, how many inches or millimeters to the foot. Certainly, certainly. Before, because we've got a packed show tonight, but before we go, I wanted to talk a little bit associated with what, even even in the four or five months since I saw you give your clinic at the O-Scale National, I have had friends and co-workers that, have either bought or have talked very positively about buying 3D printers. This is something, this is a technology which is becoming more and more used by a variety of different folk. And you were really 
one of the early evangelists in the hobby for the use of 3D printers. But as they come down in price, as they improve in quality, it just seems to be a no-brainer. And what was the feedback that you received from your clinic? And can you talk a little bit about what has come out and since you've given your clinic associated well, with new entry-level uh, 3D printers? You're a great straight man, and I don't even pay you for this. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm no. telling the truth. It's the honest truth. I've had co-workers start discussions associated with 3D printers. The fellow who literally sits opposite my cube put in $5,000 for a, a fl- raised fluid bed, whatever they call it, uh, mm-hmm. 3D printer. I think people that have a little bit of hobby money and are in a wide variety of hobbies, he uses it for uh, wargaming and toy soldiers. But, you know, mm-hmm. there are people that are looking at this, the the robotics community, the, you know, a variety of different communities are looking at 3D printing now, which is bringing down the price of the printers and upping the quality. Anyway, talk a little bit yes. more, Terry. Well, <laughs> let, let me give background on the, I gave two 3D printing clinics at the National. One was an overview of what would be the a perfect 3D printer. Well, there's not a perfect 3D printer yet, but in my opinion, what would the perfect 3D printer be? It will be it would be more like an appliance. The other clinic was a hands-on draw at a concrete whistle post in O scale, of course, because it's the O scale convention, and then 3D printed on a desktop machine. Now the desktop machine I brought to do that 3D print was a $150 machine that you could buy across the street from the convention. And actually, three people did, during the convention, go across the street and buy 3D printers. So Amazing. The 3D <laughs> printer has, has come down almost to the level of the Dremel tool. Okay? And as such, you need to start thinking of it as a tool and not as a separate hobby. Mm. So I've done a lot of things with my 3D printer, from printing car parts to printing small structures, and I have a larger 3D printer. I need to start working with that a little bit more, which will allow me to print a whole O-scale car like a flat car, Mm. which would be one of my first projects. But you can now get 3D printers under $150 that are decent machines. And the point I made in the clinic was this is not going to be your one-time purchase of a 3D printer any more than your one-time purchase of any tool is. So jump in, get your feet wet. At 100 bucks, 150 bucks, it's almost an impulse purchase. There are stores now where you can go and get your supplies. As a matter of fact, two days ago, I was in our local micro center and picked up another roll of filament. Mm. So I didn't have to send away to some exotic place to get filament for my 3D printer. There are companies now that will stand behind their products with returns, repairs, and spare parts which wasn't always the case when 3D printers were the realm of the hobbyist. Uh, But now they're becoming more of a consumer item. Again, I was in Micro Center two days ago, and they had a uh, a 3D printer there, a Flash Forge, which is a very consumer-looking machine. It's Mm -hmm. enclosed and, and everything, and it was under $200. So... 
I think 3D printing is coming of age, and I think it's going to continue to be important because as we lose manufacturers, mm. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to start picking up the slack somehow. Mm. And uh, as we go for more and more specific models with specific details, the way to get those is not always to wait for some manufacturer to come out with it, but to make it yourself. Ultimately, maybe there will be a, like you have what's called thingiverse for the MakerBot people where they exchange their models so people can put out a model and other people can download it and use it. Maybe at some point there'll be such an exchange for railroad-oriented mm. models. Who knows? At least I'm hopeful. It is an amazing opportunity. I mean, for me, it's literally my co-worker constantly says to me, do, do you want anything built? Do you want anything made? I've gotten a bunch of stuff from him. And what is fascinating is the improvements in the software as well. I mean, mm -hmm. once you have hardware and software working together, um, this thing is projected. So you have, I guess, they're a bit like, it's a bit like pasta glued together struts that are holding everything in place that produce these amazingly elaborate kind of 3D prisms, which you have to cut through in order to get the stuff bits of, as it's built. But it's just amazing that he updates a version of software and mysteriously they fall away to much simpler struts and these kind of things. So it is a fascinating time. And also, I mean, I still periodically do orders through Shapeways, although increasingly he's just like, just send me the, send me the files, send me the files. It's an amazing time for 3D printing. I think Shapeways has increased their prices, which forces more people into the realm of purchasing a 3D printer. And yeah, it's a fascinating time, Terry. So thank you very much for your early efforts with this thing. And certainly, if three people walked away from the O-Scale convention with a 3D printer, I think that's an amazing success in terms of your clinic, right? Look, that is a success as well, because I hope that they, people will see what they can do, and they can say, I can do that too. Well, know, it's not rocket science. I think the, the, the big point of my hands-on clinic, draw that concrete whistle post, is it demystifies the design process. So I've given that clinic, I gave that clinic a few weeks after the national at uh, the uh, Mideast region of the NMRA. And people, you know, they just, the light bulb came on over their head. Yeah, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that difficult. It demystifies it and people say, yes, I can do this. Hopefully this is going to catch on. Terry, I've got to say thank you very much for what you did with the O-Scale National. It actually was the high bar as far as I'm concerned, and certainly the NMRA convention that I went to in Mawa, I told the folks off a little bit and said, why couldn't they be more like the O-Scale National? They said, but that's a national. So anyway, I don't know what that means. But Terry, thank you very much for your efforts this year. I'm pleased that you're getting back into the hobby after uh, the necessary uh, <laughs> cooling off period following what was an amazing convention, and I think ticked a number of boxes for a number of people. So thank you for your efforts there, and thank you for calling into Model Rail Radio today. Pleasure catching up with you. I'm glad to be back, Tom. Thank you. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too, Terry. Thank you. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who, while I was talking to Terry Terrence, noted that his second daughter 
is dating a guy who does a lot of 3D printing. Dana Driscoll, before we get to your formal introduction, could you talk a little bit about this? I mean, you yourself is no, are noting how prevalent 3D printing is now, right? Right. It, it seems I completely agree with uh, what you were just saying, that it, it's coming on and it's going to be one of those things that we are going to think of as, as uh, just an automatic. Uh, people are going to start doing it. I'm not all that good on the CAD side of things or on the software side of things, so I was really excited when Juliana you know, started talking about this guy who does 3D printing, and he honestly, he's intrigued by the layout, so he's, uh, he's going to be a willing uh, employee of the railroad. Very good, very good. So let's return to the formality. It's been a while since you called, Ben. We have a new requirement put to us by a new listener. For folks listening in, could you please introduce yourself and your model railroading interests? Sure can. Um, I'm Dana Driscoll. I live in Santa Barbara County in southern central California, wherever you want to put it. And my big interest has always been railroad history and through that railroad um, model railroading. And I have a railroad of my own, which is an end scale in the garage. I also serve dutifully for an HO, a large HO uh, railroad here in the Santa Barbara area. Gary Siegel has a railroad um, modeled on the LNN in 1971. My end scale is 1920 in the Nevada deserts and mountains. So that's what I love to do. And I've been working uh, recently on updating the, uh, the uh, uh, excuse me, my end scale portion. Can we talk a little bit about N-scale in the 1920s? How much <laughs> ready-to-run stuff is available? Do you, do you, do you kit-build anything? I mean, what, what kind of stuff are you doing in with that layout? Well, I have had to bash. Uh, I've had to do some curious things based in, on the fact that I'm intrigued by a particular railroad. The Union Pacific's gateway into Los Angeles was the Salt Lake route, and uh that gave me the opportunity to check their roster. Uh, they had a McKean car uh, close to Las Vegas, and so I had to bash a McKean car out of an old, it was an Amtrak that uh, ended up being sacrificed. Uh, and from that, I was able to build up a, uh, a motor car. But as far as steam goes, uh, you've got the, the Kato uh, 282s, mm -hmm. which are legit for 1920. And uh, Spectrum makes a consolidation that if you get the right ones and you do a little tweaking with them, they run pretty good. But it's a challenge. It's most definitely a challenge to do steam in 1920 uh, in N scale and have to be somewhat of a masochist. Mm. I certainly got that from you when you first called in. In terms of the <laughs> stuff that you're going to be cleaning up with the layout, what, what kind of stuff are you going to be working on? I guess this would be... People have asked how many renditions of this particular area of Nevada I've done, and it's almost like a fetish, I suppose, but I work with an area, the Union Pacific would have called it their third subdivision, and it goes down from Caliente, Nevada, not mm -hmm. Caliente, California, but Caliente, Nevada, and you'd know from your Las Vegas times, but it goes down to Vegas, and uh, in that area in between, you've got the Moapa Valley, and I do that branch, and uh, and when I finally localized onto that branch with Moapa at one end and St. Thomas at the other, um, that was all well and good, but I found myself wanting, I, I couldn't do any helper service, mm. and 
So I ended up doing something I swore I'd never do again. I reinvented a helix, and I put in a second level. Mm. And when I did that, uh, you know, with all the all the problems that come with it, I've got them pretty much ironed out. But it's uh, it's allowed me to put in an area that goes up through a section that the railroad had some fun operating tests on. Uh, they they would send a um, an engine down from Caliente, which was a division point, and they'd get about halfway down to a place called Leith, and at Leith they'd turn the engine around and then back it down a few miles and, and to couple up at a town called Carp, mm. and then they'd pull the trains up through the Rainbow Canyon. Well, Rainbow Canyon's really nice, so I decided that this would give me the opportunity to get, one, helper service, and two, uh, some modeling of an area that I like to, to uh, mess with, so... That's what's been added, and it's about, mm, I'm going to give it about 50% there. It's mm. operational. It just doesn't look like much of a Rainbow Canyon yet. Interesting. So what kind of scenery do you need to add? Well, it's uh, there's a whole lot of rock, uh, and they call it Rainbow Canyon because of all the different types of minerals and things like that. So you go around, and, and you can, if you get up into that part of Nevada, you can go to Caliente and you can drive south from there. That would be railroad west, but you'd be dropping south on the map. And you can get down a little ways before you'd end up having to use a four-wheel drive uh, mm. uh, to keep going. Um, but along the way, if anybody ever gets over that way, I recommend it. It's a uh, it's nice area. And they did call it Rainbow Canyon legitimately. Mm. And, um, you know, there's just a... a some some nice things to to model i uh have gathered up a lot of postcards and of course the the postcards of the 1910s you know the artists got to use their own imagination on what they they did so you have to take it with a grain of salt <laughs> but but it, you know it's it's somewhat inspirational and then i've been surprised sometimes when i'll go there and whether or not the artist in new york or new jersey who, who painted the postcard really knew Sometimes they get it right. Mm. Sometimes it's as impressive. And if if you go north from there, you end up, you know, rolling into Utah. And when you get into Utah, you get into all sorts of marvelous types of colors and things like that. So it's it's good, but uh, it's not so much trees. It's mostly what happens with the rocks. Mm. My experience of driving around there is was astonishing to me because we didn't see any other vehicles. It's one Mm. of the most curious. I mean, even on the long stretches of desert you know, going north-south through Nevada, you always see other vehicles. And we saw a Ranger car after about two and a half hours. And I pointed out to my wife, this is the first vehicle I've seen for a long time. It is, I mean, in Australia, you have those experiences, but I so rarely have them driving in the US. So, yeah, that's that's my recollection of that part of uh, that part of the world. But, yeah, beautiful, beautiful area to model if you like modeling that kind of stuff. And certainly, I think we share that particular proclivity, Dana. So thank you for uh, Fulfilling in the gaps on that. Interesting stuff. The other thing that, that's going on down here, of course, is that we have our monthly uh, operations over at, at Gary's HO Railroad, mm-hmm. which uh, it gathers in people. Sometimes folks come down from the Bay Area, and, and yeah. people have come from, from a variety of places, but it's mostly centric to a few of us here in town, and, and a lot of people from Southern California will brave the uh, freeways and highways to drive up to, to meet us when things aren't on fire. We did have, and one of the reasons I was away for ever in July, we almost got burnt out. 
Mm. Our next door neighbors, we they lost their homes on two of our four neighbors on the four points of the compass. Uh, two of them lost their homes. Uh, there was fire in our front yard. I lost a shed. Uh, it got really, really close. Mm. And uh, what what the the only th- reason I bring this up was the funny sort of thing that went on in, in the back of my head as we evacuated and we were staying over at another daughter's house that night thinking about what was going on was whether or not if we went back and there was nothing else well what was i going to build for the next railroad (laughs) optimism optimism there you are there you are and it's it's funny i caught myself actually doing that in the middle and then of course reality set in i started oh my god there are significantly more important things than that and Mm. uh and then, of course, here in California, as you know, up north, you know, there's been tremendous amount of devastation. But we were very lucky, and everything's on the mend around here. Well, getting off of that subject, just back into the whole subject of what goes on at the at the LNN. Uh, you might remember I last time I called, I talked about being a mole, which mm. is. I've now been stuck in that position. I and one other fellow, you know, never volunteer and yes. also never admit any competence in anything. And so I had just enough confidence that they kept me in the in the mall. So I go there every every month. But it's actually kind of fun. Since we spoke, I've seen Dave Ramos's lap and Dave Ramos renovated his mole space. Well, so my perspective is, in fact, also Craig Biscaya as a kind of Craig Biscay has a palatial mold space. Craig Biscay's mold space is actually an outlook over the entire layout. It's actually really curious. I mean, even though it's in a corner, it's elevated and you get to see the entire layout, even though you're doing mold duties in a, in a mold space. So mm-hmm. I think that there are actually luxurious ways that mold spaces can be renovated. I think it takes a particular quality of mold to get it done, though. So, Dana, <laughs> your, your assignment is to... Uh, improve your mole operating area and i think that's uh, yes well the closest we came to that was my my friend warren and i who also serves as as the other side of the mole is uh we did put in some surveillance cameras Ah, we have tucked around various places so we can see once the trains go through the wall and into the railroad we're not really seeing the railroaders but we Mm. do see the underbelly of it all so we can keep track of things. And that's actually added a certain dimension to the fun because mm. we we really do get a lot of views by way of our little Wi-Fi cameras. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I'd hoped to talk to Craig Bisker. I, I was delinquent, actually, in taking photographs of this thing. I spent about two hours with a gentleman cleaning up his layout for a layout tour, and you get to learn a lot about someone cleaning up their layout for a layout <laughs> tour. Let's just put it out there. So. Anyway, Dana... Thank you very much for calling in, and Pleasure. thank you for uh, for sharing update. I'm really very glad that you did survive um, the fires because certainly um, many people in my area as well also did not survive the uh, yeah. the fires, and it's a pretty miserable thing. We've had obviously more recent fires close. Yes, it's just I think the way things are, unfortunately. Hopefully, this too shall pass. Yes, but thank you very much for calling in. Have a great Christmas, a great thank you. New Year. And look forward yeah. to talking to you in the new year. Thank you for calling Good. in. Good. And same to everyone out there. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I haven't had the opportunity to talk with for far too long. Barry Silverthorne called in last recording 
and I realised it had been an inordinate length of time since I'd had a chance to chat with Roger Chrysler. Roger, welcome back onto Model Rail Radio. Long time no talk. Well, thanks. Uh, I think the last time I talked was probably show 100, so that's yes. been quite a while. Uh, yes. Um, so, uh, inter- we, we have a introduced procedure myself? now. Yes, in- introduce yourself. Very good. You know okay. the procedure. <laughs> yeah, I'm a long-time listener, uh, um, participant way back, and... Uh, Right now, I'm uh, a traction modeler, HO scale, uh, between layouts, uh, between houses. And uh, let's see, I work, uh, I've uh, been in the NMRA for uh, over 30 years now. Um, I support them. I work at uh, Credit Valley Railway, uh, one of the largest uh, hobby shops in Canada. Uh, help them with their... DCC installs, repairs, custom modeling, and whatever else needs doing. So I remember hearing about the layout dismantling. I think there were even some photographs to support said layout dismantling. Did you pack the layout up? Did you give bits of it away? Did you just get rid of it? Did you keep any structures? What did you salvage through the process? All rolling stock and structures, bridges, trees, Everything else pretty well went in the dumpster except for one small section. Uh, one of my friends wanted a piece of it. Uh, we were going to take, he was going to take a couple of pieces, but uh, after uh, spending the morning uh, with sawzalls and uh, screwdrivers trying to dismantle this one piece, he said, uh, maybe I'll just take this one piece and that that's it. So the, all the rest uh, went in the dumpster, so about 150 linear feet of railroad running, hand-laid track, uh, overhead wire, uh, all gone. Mm. Ready for a fresh start. Most definitely, most definitely. So in terms of the fresh start, do you have any thoughts about the space? Do you have the space? Are you looking to acquire the space? What Are you going to yeah, go I to have, modules? What, what What's the story? Well, I have the space. Uh, we've moved into a single-story condo. So uh, with a full basement, unfinished, basic uh, layout area is uh, about 53 by 25. I'm planning on going around the walls on uh, uh, shelving, uh, about two feet wide maximum, uh, everything within reach. So I'm able to uh, redo a lot of the scenes that I did previously and uh, add some more industrial switching and more scenes that I missed out on the first time. Mm. Uh, some of which uh, I didn't have the research at the time. And I've, you know, since come along stuff like uh, across my workbench area, I'm going to have a, uh, I plan to have a long bridge over the Grand River, which wasn't in my previous layout. So it just uh, magically uh, appeared uh, somewhere south of the uh, the Grand River, which is the major river through here. Mm. So that, that that would be a significant scene in Brantford anyway. And uh, just planning on, with, with the operation we were doing, I found that some of the industrial switching was kind of lacking. So mm-hmm. I'm able to incorporate more of that now to uh, keep my uh, operators interested and so on. Very good, very good. So, in terms of the time frame for for laying track for this kind of stuff, do you have any thoughts? Uh, it's going to be probably, I think, uh, maybe six months to a year from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, we have to finish the uh, walls of the walls and the ceiling and so on of the space downstairs. Uh, that's one thing I kind of missed out on the last layout. Uh, we had the pressing time frame of the uh, coming nationals in 2003 in Toronto, and I mm. wanted to get something up and running for that. And uh, I kind of uh, skimped on finishing the layout room beforehand. So mm. my wife uh, is insisting that I have a nice layout room before we uh, put up benchwork and so on. So it's a, that's a good idea. Always a good idea. Always a yeah. good idea. So in terms of what you know now, you got rid of almost everything, which means you start afresh from a lot of this. It's, are there improvements in the prototype models? Or is there a reason why you didn't keep any of the rolling stock? Well, I kept all the rolling stock. Yeah, okay. all the rolling stock's cut. Um, the thing I'm looking forward to is uh, I did hand-laid code 70 track before. I'm going to mm. do that again. Mm. But now with the new technology of uh, fast tracks and so on, uh, uh, upping my game a little bit as to uh, reliability of the track work. I had some good stuff and some that was maybe not so good. Uh, So with fast tracks, you're able to, I think, uh, maintain overall quality as long as you follow the, you know, the (laughs) gauges and that sort of thing. Um, So I'm looking, looking forward to doing that. I, when uh, Tim Weris is, uh, jigs came along i'd already hand built about 50 turnouts by then so it was uh kind of late in the game and i replaced some of the uh turnouts i had with uh fast tracks but um i'm looking forward to using that stuff oh yeah well roger pleasure catching up sorry to hear about the old layout but it sounds like you've got good plans for the new layout in terms of model rail radio in terms of your just general DCC installation, are we missing anything? Are there any topics that you'd like to hear as you listen into Model Rail Radio? More traction, obviously. I mean, that goes without uh, saying, but, but what else? Well, I don't, I, I don't think you're really missing anything. Um, I, I've been catching up on some of the old shows. Uh, <clears throat> I think I'm around 142 or something right now, uh, listening to uh, trying to catch up uh, as I'm doing my work around the house and so on, so... Uh, always enjoyed listening and uh, background noise as I uh, fiddle around and uh, do my projects. So uh, just keep up the good work, Tom. Thank you. Well, you haven't right. heard then that we are having a layout design contest, and it's an important point. Unfortunately, we lost Ron Kleiss. He was on for a minute. But we are running a layout design contest that ends in on the last day of January. So there's still time for folks as they hear this to enter. The rules are, I originally said five feet by two feet, but I then converted that to inches, so you could do square inches, and something I found through the week, you could do an O-shaped layout. You could actually miss the center part and do a a loop layout within the rules of the area. So the area is uh, 1,440 square inches, or five feet by two feet, or any combination of that you want to do. So... If you want to do a donut layout, which uh, someone actually submitted, feel free to do that as well. The only requirements are that there are two structures, HO scale, that's a requirement. You can do narrow gauge if you want to do, you could do broad gauge, but HO to fit in with the structure size. And the structures, I think, are about three inches by four inches and maybe three inches by five inches or in that kind of uh, vicinity. So just have a couple of structures. You could have more if you want. And the prizes for this layout design contest are two kits from my map models. The first two kits, if 
Ron Close and I, the two judges, decide that there are two separate layouts that one, like Ron likes one, I like one, then we will send out four kits. And we will also send out kits to any layout that requires or demands an honourable mention. And the requirements are you submit this via PDF or JPEG or any means by midnight on the last day of January, midnight Pacific time. Tom at Model Rail Radio, Model Rail Radio, all one word, dot com is the email address to submit your layout plan to. So, Roger, I think I filled in the gaps from where you are currently to the present show. <laughs> but uh, you are someone who could be a candidate to enter this layout design contest, right? This is a space that you can play in. As soon as I find the uh, box with my graph paper, I'll, I'll get right on it. <laughs> very good. Roger, thank you very much for calling in. You are in my top ten people I wanted to catch up with before the end of the year, so thank you for... Uh, for calling in and giving me the opportunity to, to tick off a name who I haven't had the opportunity to talk with for a long period of time, but I know you're doing amazing work out there, thanks to Barry Silverthorne and a wide variety of other folk that do occasionally give me little micro-updates associated with your assistance to a wide variety of folk in your area. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for calling in. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year as well. Always important to say, too. Okay, thank you very much. Yep, we'll see you. Merry okay. Christmas, everybody. I would like to welcome on another gentleman who I haven't talked to for a while, John Garrity, representing the Australian Christmas spirit, our first Australian call for the evening. We've got a new procedure now. We had a first-time listener who said, it's amazing the camaraderie on Model Rail Radio, but I'm never really clear who is who and what they do. So for this new listener and the countless other new listeners that come to this podcast, could you please introduce yourself and your Model Railroading interests? Uh, yes. Hi, Tom and all. My name's John Garrity. I'm the co-owner of the Coromel Colliery Incline Layout. It's a narrow-gauge coal hauler in O-scale uh, using HO track to represent two-foot gauge tracks between a coal mine and uh, the top of a handoff to a, a standard-gauge railway. Uh, that's the current project. And yes, I've been in the hobby uh, probably for a long while, probably nudging 50 years if I was truthful. Very good. Very good. Is that enough for an intro? I think that gives a good example. You are also well-connected with a wide variety of folks in Australia that do a lot of really interesting stuff, including Model Rail Radio's own professor. I have not heard from the professor in a number of months, so my hope was to get to Australia next year, but I may not be able to get there. If I don't get to Australia next year, I may never speak to the professor again. And what has been going on with the professor? Can you give a professor update for those of us that are interested in something? Professor update, uh, not sure. I know he's flat out. <laughs> Very good. Uh, he has started on another modelling project, which I'm not going to give away. Ooh, secrets. Uh, secret. Top secret. <laughs> Very good. And yes, there's, well, not sure when you had the last op update, but yes, he has changed jobs. Mm -hmm. And yes, he's very busy in his new job, which is chopped into his modelling time. Yes, we did talk, I think... Well, last was... time, I think, was um, show 141, where uh, we were together at North Richmond with the Coromel layout. Mm. Yeah, I saw him so... in Australia probably just before that show recording. And certainly we had a long talk in a drive associated with uh, his change of jobs. And yeah, actually it was a wonderful opportunity because the professor and I are basically contemporaries. 
And we've had a number of similar experiences. And certainly I spent a bit of quality time in Wollongong. Funnily enough, my brother is starting a job which will send him to Wollongong periodically. So, yeah, it's a very familiar part of the world to me, and I have a lot of time for the professor. So if you're listening in, Professor, shout-outs to you. And uh, we do appreciate whenever you have a chance to call in. And, uh, yeah, my hope is that uh, I'll get to Australia, certainly within the next couple of years, but I'll certainly look him up when I'm in Australia uh, to see what he's up to. And interesting, so a top-secret project, which I will uh, not ask any more questions about. Very good, very good. <laughs> so, I'm sure he'll reveal it when he's ready. Very good. Always, always important. In terms of you, in terms of Coromel, in terms of a wide variety of shows in Australia where you'll probably be showing Coromel, what's going on with Coromel currently? It's about to get into its um, kind of annual building spurt. Mm. Uh, a lot of work gets done on it between uh, over the Christmas, New Year to end of January period. One of the problems is where the layout is usually stored and where I am is not one in the same place no. usually. No. Uh, at present, I've got the layout at present. It's under my carport roof. <laughs> so guess who's the bunny doing all the work this Christmas? Sounds like you. And you, you. <laughs> Very good. Yes, my, my ears are growing. Very good. Very good. So what kinds of stuff are you able to do on Coromel, uh in its present state? What, what kind of things are you working on? Uh, there's... We did go out in May to a one-day show. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that's taught us is never do a one-day show again. It's too much work and too difficult getting in and out Certainly. in a day. Um, so, yes, the, the, the layout's done. It's probably one and only one-day show. Mm. Uh, so that was at uh, Loftus for the Modelling the Railways of New South Wales Convention. Mm. Uh, that's the third weekend in May, so there'll be another one next year. We're getting the layout ready to go to the Australian Narrow Gauge Convention next Easter. Mm-hmm. So coming out of what we found in May, there was a few things that need, in some cases, a major overhaul, in other cases, minor titivating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've got the job of, of doing that. There's a stretch of track that's giving us some problems that will have to come up and be relayed. Apart from that, more trees on the scenery Mm. um, and more buildings for the mine. Where the mine was at, there were mainly placeholder buildings Mm -hmm. on it when it was displayed in May. We're now building detailed buildings with detailed interiors uh, to go on on the layout to replace the placeholders. Mm. Uh, One of the other jobs we've got is to get the layout up on its own legs. Previously, we were using tables to support the layout. So we've got the aluminium cut for that. It's a case of fabricating the stands and getting it up in the air. Mm -hmm. And that's got to happen between now and Easter. Uh, And there's only 12 modules to get up in the air. And there are some very interesting junctions between modules and where you put your legs, etc. Yes. So there's a bit of reactive engineering will happen on that. I'm sure there's going to be some reactive engineering. <laughs> where What we've got planned, well, seemed like a good idea at the time, but we might need to modify it slightly. Mm. How much modification is yet remains to be seen. Pretty good. So there's some interesting times coming up. 
there hasn't been much progress on it since May because I went overseas. So uh, about 10 weeks wandering around Europe and the UK. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, if anyone ever gets the chance and they get to Hamburg for Miniature Wonderland, there are a limited number of English-only uh, or English-language behind-the-scene tours. Mm. Do yourself a favour and book that. <laughs> Very good. You get to see a whole different aspect of that layout. That layout's impressive by itself. Mm. But what goes on behind the scenes is inspiring. The YouTube channel is pretty phenomenal, and I think Google Translate isn't wonderful, but you can at least understand it. I think sometimes even you see English translations through that. So, yes, it certainly sounds like an amazing place to uh, to work, if nothing more, but also to visit. So, yes, fascinating stuff. Uh, yes. On the day that I went there, unfortunately or fortunately, I was the only person on that tour. Mm. Uh, now, I'm nudging six foot. Um, I'm not built like a rake, but I'm not excessively wide for height. There are places going through uh, on that back scene store. If you're too wide, you won't get there. Mm. I'll run that up the flagpole now. Very good. Uh, because there was places where I was moving sideways to get past the layout. Mm. It's, it can get tight in there. Claustrophobic. Very good. <laughs> um, but apart from that hey, there's some interesting stuff and there's some stuff you see on the other side of the hill away from the public where the modelers, modelers behind it have had some fun. Mm, very good. Uh, it's worthwhile going through just to see that. How they work the airport uh, on that layout is absolutely amazing as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, so there wasn't just... Uh, miniature Wonderland on the on the radar. We did a whole flock of other stuff as well. So there was a, a two-week bus trip through Switzerland, Austria, Germany. Mm. The run from uh, Budapest down to Amsterdam on the Rhine, and I'll add the word here, almost, mm. because perhaps not many people know it was a very dry summer in Europe and the Rhine and the Danube went very, very low. Wow. Now, the boat we were on drew 1.8 metres, which is about as tall as I am. Mm. It didn't make it all the way. Mm. So we wound up with a 14-day tour where four of the days were on a bus because there wasn't enough water to float the boat. Gosh, gosh. Uh, there has been some interesting things discovered where stuff has sunk previously mm. and has now resurfaced. Amazing. Because the river's channel. The, the river shrunk that far back into the channel. Gosh. Downstream of Budapest, uh, someone fell over uh, a wreck with their metal detectors and they've been digging up coins of various silver and gold of various values wow. and weights. Gosh. What isn't widely known is how much stuff moves by river in Europe. Certainly. Uh, the barges were running at one-third capacity. Now, that's dumped a lot of extra freight onto the road and rail network Gosh. and the road and rail network were running freight trains everywhere at maximum capacity. Gosh. So there was electric locos hauling, you know, as much as stuff as they could stack on them mm. uh, to get it from one side of Europe to the other. Mm. So it was interesting to see that. Then we got to the UK, a whole flock of very, very interesting places. And no, not all of it was trains. My wife and daughter would have shot me <laughs> if it was. <laughs> 
Understandable, yeah. So we did get to see the Edinburgh military tattoo. Mm. If anyone's got half a chance, book your tickets early. It is very worthwhile just mm. seeing how they put that together. Certainly. One other place we did get to was a place called Statfold Barn. Mm. Don't know whether you've heard of it. Well, for those that haven't. Uh, for those that haven't, it's a two-foot gauge railway with an 18-inch gauge track as well that's on a, a large farm mm. near Tamworth in the UK. On that day that we went, it was an enthusiast day, they had 18 two-foot gauge steam locos <laughs> out in steam. Very good. Then there was uh, the Wandering Goose, which was based on a US prototype, but uh, was interesting to see it. There was a battery-powered tram that used to run off overhead that now runs on battery, double-deck uh, tram, uh, and there was a garden 18-inch gauge line that had two locos on it. One was a vertical boiler. I forget what the other one was, but they were both interesting locos. Mm. Uh, all this on one property. Yes. Now, this place uh, also, the guy who owns it, also holds the intellectual property rights for everything Hunslet. Mm. Now, that might not ring many bells to people in the US, but for people elsewhere in the world, Hunslet uh, eventually wound up owning a lot of other firms that were building locomotives for a long time. Mm. So uh, you wound up with uh, Peckett's, Avonsides, Hudswell Clark, some of the North British Railway stuff, mm -hmm. Robert Stevenson, mm. and there was a whole flock of firms that eventually wound up under the, the Hunslet banner by the, the mid-1950s. So sitting on a, I suppose you'd call it a mezzanine level, above one of the main display areas were five Hunslets. Mm. Uh, these are the quarry-type Hunslets, the little Welsh engines that ran the slate quarries in Wales. Mm. Not one, not two, not three, <laughs> five of them. These ones weren't in steam, and one of them was a sectioned loco. Gosh. So apparently these five were, when when the quarry shut, went to Canada, and the guy who owns the farm has repatriated all five of them back to the UK, and they're up on this mezzanine level, and the finish on them is absolutely magnificent. Mm-hmm. There were perhaps another 15 locomotives from various <laughs> manufacturers, steam, diesel, petrol, including the Go-Go Fordson tractor that was built. Uh, they weren't running, they were just on display, and that was in their main display area. They also used this display hall as a um, uh, reception centre. Mm. So it's got catering facilities and everything else attached to it. And if that wasn't enough, there was something like six-plus traction engines run, swanning around in one of the other paddocks <laughs> uh, with a collection of uh, various trucks, trailers, tractors, and that was in the, the bottom paddock. Uh, it was kind of a case of walk in the door at uh, almost nine o'clock when the show opened, and I think we're almost the last ones out of there because our car was a long way up in the paddock and there wasn't much around us that we left. Yes, yes. So it was a case of, of making the most of it. But um, for narrow-gauge inspiration, uh, Statfile Barn 
goes a long way towards the top of the tree. Mm. This is in a country, I mean, it's hard to imagine, certainly the, the folks that call in from Kent, two, three narrow-gauge steam locomotives can call on two, three more in their area. You've never seen conservation like they do it in the UK. I mean, they really have just such a keen sense of history, maintaining history, and maintaining people that know how to look after the the locomotives as well. It's just such an amazing community. And you've obviously seen an extreme case of that. But even, like I say, with the folks in Kent and a wide variety of other parts of the UK, the access to steam locomotives, historical steam locomotives, that, as you say, are maintained impeccably, are still running, still teaching people about this uh, bygone era. Just amazing stuff. John Garrity, it sounds like you had a wonderful, wonderful vacation. Yes, well, we saw a whole flock of scenery, found a whole lot of narrow alleyways and laneways. Oh, yeah. The UK was all self-drive, so Mm -hmm. there was one spot where we got on a a country lane and I was hoping like blazes there was nothing coming the other way because there was nowhere to back up. Yes, you usually find sheep in those kind of lanes, I've found historically. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, actually, you mentioned your trip on the Rhine because I was thinking of doing that next year. I don't know if there'll be a possibility for me to get there, but that is one of my dream trips, having travelled by train along the Rhine. And as you say, you don't associate the Rhine, I mean, those of us that don't live near the Rhine, don't associate the Rhine with industrial shipping, but that is its primary use. It's uh, even more than the Mississippi or the Colorado. It is an industrial shipping river. And uh, to go along the Rhine by train and to see not only the passenger boats but also as you say these things with the um with the containers on them moving up and down the rhine it's just amazing the you know it's arterial river that actually carries so much uh in terms of the uh, goods and services and people so it sounds like you were there at a very interesting time if the the water was so low and it's not just containers it, it's uh gravel or oh yeah um coal yes uh, liquids, uh, a lot of petroleum yes, is definitely. refined in, in, in the Netherlands and moved upriver uh, by barge. Yes. It, it, it's incredible the diversity of, of barges that you see on the river as you float past. Now, the, the outfit I went out on was one of the better-known Australian outfits that runs river cruises. There are at least half a dozen others out there mm-hmm. that are headquartered in in different places Mm, certainly so there's one place where we tied up and i think there was four other cruise boats you actually (laughs) had to go across two other cruise boats of of these river cruise boats to get to the the wharf yes they were parked that deep yes and like it wasn't three there was another parking spot in front with another three tied up and another parking (laughs) spot behind with another three tied up yes so if you say each of those cruise boats has got, let's say, somewhere between 100 and 150 people, the regional economy of some of these tourism spots depends very, very heavily on the, these cruise boats going. Certainly. Or, uh, I'll call them cruise boats, but they're a, a very, very shallow draft, kind of a, a very long barge. The one we had on was three decks, and it didn't get through. Some of the two-deck ones were getting through, mm. but only just. Yes. We did get to float down the Rhine past Lorelei Rock. For, for that, I'm extremely happy. Mm. I figure if you're going to Europe and going to have a, a Rhine cruise, the least you can do is float past Lorelei Rock. 
for those who don't know the legend of the Lorelei, this is supposedly where some very beautiful women were, would sit on the rock and, and sing songs in the midst of the passing boatmen. Yes. And sucker them in onto the reef. <laughs> yes. So uh, it was interesting. There was a whole flock of castles that we saw. Mm. Not after about the second week, our description of a castle was just another pile of rock. <laughs> yes, you get spoiled, then, don't you? You really get spoiled <laughs> very quickly. Yes. The, the scary thing is we're walking past buildings that kind of are 1,500 and earlier on, on them as far as dates go. You know, Australia as a continent wasn't even found then. Mm. Um, yes. As, you know, so the, the culture in Europe goes back as far as built culture goes a long way past anything that we've got in Australia. And it was enlightening just to see how tight things were. Certainly. You walked into one of these medieval buildings, the first thing you did was duck. <laughs> because a lot of people don't realise that prior to World War Two, people were a lot shorter than they are now. Mm. And in the Middle Age, in the Middle Ages, when when food was was scarce or poor quality, you know, four foot six would be a relatively large person. Mm. And you know that type of stuff you don't realise till you actually see it, and then try and get through some of it. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, certainly there was a disparity in height between a lot of nations of Europe and Germans and Scandinavians. In the Second World War, the physical differences in size was well noted in the First World War as well. So it's more than just that. There were groups of people that were more our height, because I'm six, three and a half on a good day, four on a bad day. And it's interesting, actually, when I went to Germany for the first time, it's the first time I've gotten off a train and not been the tallest person quite comfortably. There were a lot of really tall people, and it's certainly something that I think about when I read histories um, of the First World War and the Second World War, that actually when these people came together to fight, there were very great differences in height, um, which came through genetics as well, a variety of factors. But yes, when you live in cramped, cold-filled cities, you're, um, you're not going to be perhaps quite as tall as folks that have grown up in in countryside with, with particular kinds of genetics as well. Joe Garrity, we have a lot of folk on. We have a, a diminishing time, unfortunately. It sounds like you had a wonderful trip. Thank you very much for calling. Thank you very much for providing an update. And have a great Christmas. I'm looking forward to the notion that I have at least one caller that is going to be enjoying a nice, wonderful summer Christmas. Are you cooking anything special for Christmas? There will probably be a turkey on the table. Wonderful. Or... <laughs> um, of what description of turkey, I'm not too sure. Or as which part of it is another question. But yes, there will be be something cooked on the table, but there will be a lot of solid salad. Wonderful. There will be prawns, there will be oysters, there will be ham. Enjoy. Enjoy. So, Wollongong has just has, in terms of seafood, you're spoilt for choice. Thank you very much for calling in, John Garrity. Have a great Christmas. Look forward to talking to you in, to you in 2019. Okay, before I go, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all, and we'll catch you in 2019. Thank you very much, John. I'd like to welcome on a gentleman who I see his production on a regular basis. The Snossage car is such a central part of my room. I have it currently neatly baggied in two plastic bags to give it a little buffering zone 
because I have to, I'm rearranging my podcasting room currently, but it is such an important artifact. The Snosich brothers are very much represented in the Mobile Rail Radio recording studio. Lawrence Hegering, we had a new listener who asked for folks such as yourself to reintroduce themselves when they call in. For folks listening in, could you please introduce yourself and your interest in the model railroading hobby? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, my name is Lawrence Eggering. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I've been, like most people, uh, playing with trains since I was literally three or four years old. Um, I'm 62 now, so that makes it, you know, quite a few years. Um, I currently own a small business called Creaky Chair Models, LLC. I specialize in doing lay- layout refurbs and um, work heavily in the um, electronics area with DCC and um, servo controls and customization. I am a decoder installer and a dealer for soundtracks, and I think that's about enough about me. What you are known for, in particular, is the aspect of your layout where you are very whimsical associated well, that's with, that's your, true. with your layout. For folks yeah, listening... Yeah. Would you like me to introduce the Schnossage Brothers? By all means. It started out, oh, some 16 or 18 years ago. I had a um, a moment of having entirely too much sugar, and uh, I went into an ADHD moment. And uh, I was building a building in the middle of the living room floor, and my wife said, what are you going to call that building? And uh, I said, you know, it was a meatpacking facility. And I said, I don't know, you know, it's probably going to be some kind of meatpacking and industrial refuse facility. And um, and she started laughing. And just then a commercial for the uh, the it, it's called Snossage and uh, we're called Schnausage and um, it, as spelled. And that came on and I said, yeah, the Snossage Brothers meatpacking and industrial refuse facility. Um, so. You know, it became a joke, and uh, my friend Richard came over, and the two of us got to chortling over it, and we have now created an entire little empire that the uh, the Schnausage brothers have. Uh, you know, they have many varied aspects. In fact, we have a uh, a new new car that just came out to support um, the newest product called Schnickels, which is a uh, it's a pickle that pickles itself. So very good, very good. And it's just, uh, there are probably, the last time I looked, I think there are nine different snossage facilities on my my layout, which is in a um, two-car garage. It's about two-thirds of a two-car garage. So uh, we built it in for operations as well, but built the whimsy around it so as to not be taken too seriously. And in terms of areas that the snossages are expanding into, are they touching on health care, any accommodation? What kind of areas are they are they expanding into? Um, it's mostly uh, food service right now. Um, we, we're trying to uh, create, you know, products that are self-deprivating and self-maintaining um, at the same time. So uh, uh, we're not really getting into healthcare yet because, you know, there is that whole genre of people that believes that, you know, pickled things are really good for your gut and all mm-hmm. that. Well. And we're thinking that the schnickel would, be, you know, would certainly probably be good for your gut, maybe, you know. But since everything glows in the dark, you know, it, it's becoming hard to find an audience for it, you know. But I, I guess, I mean, my thought was if you consume something that then glowed for x-rays and this kind of stuff, I see that there's 
Oh, a great degree of medical potential in the Snowsitch's uh, byproducts, for want of a better term. You know, um, Tom, you know, you are, a, because you have a Snowsitch Brothers card, that makes you one of the brothers. Ah. So, um, I never knew that. We could, um, <laughs> We could uh, work something out there in that aspect, and I think that uh, we should pursue it farther, and we will share those things with you and and seek your approval since it's your your idea, if you will. Very definitely. I didn't realize I was an honorary Snossage brother. Oh, no, to get a uh, even even Ralph de Blasi is is a uh, Snossage brother. He has his own car also. Wonderful. I didn't realize uh, that. Yeah, it's actually on his layout, and uh, it has a car card, and it does get mixed into traffic and all kinds of things. So, hmm. what does it carry typically? Um, in his case, it's a it's a box car, so it is either carrying processed meat or industrial waste or both. Or both, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've always thought of mine as carrying both. So, yeah, yeah. important classification. Important classification. It is. And yeah. actually, if you look at the car, as I recall, yours should, the car number should be your birth date. Hmm, I recall that. So, yes, yes. And uh, the preceding letters are uh, YGPX, X being a special, obviously. Mm-hmm. And YGP stands for you're going to puke. Very good. <laughs> very, very good. Yes. Well, now I'm uh, having to drop deeds associated with Snossage Medical. Um, I will, uh, yes, yeah, certainly get you the potential. I, I have your email address. Mm-hmm. I will, um, I will copy you on, on with our brother Guido, uh, mm-hmm. aka Richard Paul, mm-hmm. and um, we'll develop this further because he's he is in the um, the naming genre of the of the businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all have very specific names. Like uh, one of the things we have is uh, Schlerky. Mm-hmm. Which is um, sausage jerky that cooks itself. Mm-hmm. No, I and, know uh, that well. Yes, yes. Yeah, and he actually created a machine. Uh, he scratch built the model of the machine that that actually creates that product. Very good. It, it uses lasers to cut it because metal is just not not uh, adequate. You know. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely, and it would corrode the metal as well. So lasers it are definitely dissolves the way it to, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it dissolves it pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 Lawrence, you have provided me many hours of potential musing here, and I'm I have I been named in the Snossage Brothers? Do I have a Snossage Brother name? Well, we have kind uh we've kinda of left that to the individual. Mm. Uh, Richard and I uh chose our names. I'm Bubba. Mm-hmm. He's Guido. Mm-hmm. Um we have a another Snossage brother named Jeffrey Barker, who's mm. we call him Heffery, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. So if you want to remain Tom, I'd, I'd prefer to be Tony. I think Tony Snossich carries I, I all the possible it. connotations. If I could be Tony, I'll uh, I'll run with that. I'm I'm good with it. I, in fact, I'll um, I will send the appropriate memo out very and good. post it on the page. Okay. Thank you very so, much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's uh, it's my honor. You know. Very good. <laughs> Lawrence Hegering, you have improved my end of year period. Look, we're supposed to talk about your stuff, though. Enough with regards to this stuff. What's going on with creaky chair models? What's what's happening associated with that? Have you fixed any layouts recently? What's happening? Every day this week, I have worked on something. Um, today, I I have a customer has a beautiful S scale layout, mm. and uh, 
he had a, and it's all hand laid track with the exception of a couple of turnouts. Mm-hmm. And um, they were in a hidden staging area. And he had a problem with these big Allegheny locomotives that he has. Um, and he ran through a turnout because he didn't align it correctly. So while discussing it, he said, I need an, an automatic way to um, throw the tortoises if I screw up and go through the go through it. And so I developed an Arduino-based uh, circuit with push buttons and optical sensors in that hidden staging area. So if he mm. makes a mistake and goes beyond and, and the switch isn't thrown, it automatically aligns and takes care of that. So that was a, um, a fun little project. Uh, additionally, I'm in the middle of actually getting ready to start building a 6x10 layout for a customer down uh, in Ormond Beach. He's going to be carrying it to Arkansas for his um, partial year home, and so he has a layout there. So I'm 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 actually quite busy. I've done um, some some other Arduino work with uh, vehicles with lighting and things like that, and just you know whatever a customer needs, pretty much I will I'm willing to help them with. So Very and good. and in you know being in the corporate world for all those years, I never dreamed I would like this as much as I do. I'm really having a great time with it. Lawrence Hegery, always a pleasure catching up. Always a pleasure getting the latest Snossich updates. Thank you very much for calling in today. And as I've been saying, have a fantastic Christmas and a great New Year. And look forward to talking to you in 2019. Me too, Tom. Thank you for having me on. I'd like to welcome on Dave Barraza, who has historically, in the past few shows, and the irony is, he impersonated Dave Falkenberg, next show Dave Falkenberg calls it. So, Dave Barraza, um, can you impersonate Dave Freire or something like that? Maybe that might work in a similar way. Oh, that's far beyond my modeling abilities. Very good, very good. I'd like to welcome on Dave Barraza. Dave, as you, we haven't had a chance to formally talk, aside from occasional casual impersonations, which I think might have actually been cut from the audio, so most of the listeners do, don't actually know that little secret. We had a new listener that asked all long-time callers, such as yourself, people that I've eaten barbecue with on many prior occasions, if they <laughs> please reintroduce themselves in their model railroading hobby. Dave Barraza, how would you do such a thing? I'm Dave Barraza. I live on Long Island, and I model what I see. I model the New York and Atlantic operating over the Long Island Railroad, providing freight service in HO, and... Uh, I've been feverishly building track of late, and it's about mm, three-fifths of the way done. It's quite an ambitious layout. Some people would even say aggressively so. Mm. But I'm proud to be in, in part of this undertaking. And you recently removed some unneeded white goods, I seem to recall. <laughs> yes, the washer and dryer have been banished. Very good, as they should be. And uh, have you filled in the gaps? Um, this has been a tremendous kick in the pants that coupled with some visits by people who are just sort of interested in looking at the layout and seeing what my progress was. Um, uh, I've been working towards filling in the gaps and, and filling in the rest of the second level with an eye towards in roughly March, having my round robin operations group stop by and have a shakedown session version two mm-hmm. with a little bit more layout to operate on. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've uh, was I'm laying all kinds of track, getting things going, and um, enjoying enjoying myself. 
<laughs> Earlier tonight, I was building a uh, through girder bridge. And in terms of that effort, how, how much more do you have to do on the bridge? Well, the the actual kit is the easy part. I'm building the bridge first because I have to figure out how to cut the baseboard. It's an overpass, but the track is not going to rise and fall. The road is going to duck under. And since I'm building a multi-deck shelf-type layout, that means that for a road underpass, I'm going to have to cut the baseboard out so the road can dip underneath Mm. with the track staying level. So I only want to cut once, and a part of the whole, you know, cut once measure eight times mantra i figure i better darn well build this bridge to make sure how big it actually is and how you know, all, all of the variables can be narrowed down before i uh take the jigsaw to the plywood very good very good i think the um the mantra is measure eight times and then cut this is cut once and they measure eight times but it's, it's yeah they all... go to lowes buy more plywood exactly all all moving in the right direction so mm-hmm. in terms of this time frame, in terms of what you've set yourself, are you feeling confident currently or are you feeling like you've just got a lot more to do? Uh, I'm feeling confident. It's gonna, it, it could be, you know, uh, flick with your finger switches instead of full LCC control mm-hmm. as, I've, as I've completed on the, the lower level. But the main thing is just to have another shakedown session with two decks complete and see how I'm doing. The, the, the best litmus test I had on the layout in progress a year and a half ago was to have the guys over, have them play around, operate mm-hmm. trains. And uh, some things were done that I never in a million years visualized. Like perfectly legal, railroady things were done that I had never <laughs> anticipated they would do. Yes. And it's just a benefit of a second, third, fourth set of eyes on a particular job on the layout. You know, I, I'm going to have a large layout when it's done, but I, I think that everything is scaled to the point where it's not going to be one of these 18 operator layouts. It may still only be six or eight guys, but they'll just be spread out in the room. Hmm. A good use of space is an important thing. See our earlier discussion with Terry Terrence. But yeah, mm-hmm. interesting, interesting stuff, Dave. I got an excellent piece of advice uh, in Portland from uh, Byron Henderson. It was before we bought our present house. Mm-hmm. And he looked at my layout design and he said, that that's a good design. If you ever move into a larger space, don't do anything more. Just take that design and stretch everything out. Definitely. So, to a great degree, that's what I've done once uh, Once we bought our, our new basement. I mean, the beauty of doing that means that you can run longer trains, you can be more prototypical, everything mm-hmm. is slightly more civilized. The I mean, you can still have turnouts that flub up and cause, you know, backups and a variety of other problems. But in general, it makes for a slightly more philosophical layout and a slightly less... You, I mean, I'm sure you've been to layouts where the owners are just on tender hooks associated with every possible interaction because everything is just so fundamentally compressed. And I mm-hmm. think what you've done here is actually represented your own philosophy in layout form. I, I, yeah, I, I don't want the operating regime to be set in stone. I want guys to be able to improvise. And I would love to hear stories, stories from the railroad at the end of the session at the postmortem where they're like, you know, we went to this town second instead of first and we left these cars here and moved these around and we worked it all out with the dispatcher. Mm. To me, solving the puzzle and coming up with one's own individual solution is a part of the fun 
at least from the operations end of things. Um, so I, I, w- I would love to have a good, robust infrastructure that lets guys run, the, run their trains how they want to run their trains. So fingers crossed. We'll, we'll see how I do in, in a few months uh, when the guys come over, see if they feel like they have that freedom. Definitely. Definitely. Dave Brazza, thank you for calling into the last show for the year. Have a great Christmas, great New you Year, well. and look forward to talking to you in 2019. A pleasure we'll as always, Dave. Merry Christmas. Take it easy. What an amazing show. End of your show. Uh, one week after the last recording of Model Rail Radio, I did something very wrong with the dates there, but we had to get towards show 150, which is going to be recorded on January the 5th. I think I said January the 15th, the last show. I might have even cut that whole thing because it just didn't work out. Anyway, January the 5th, I am recording a morning Model Rail Radio segment and I'm recording an evening Model Rail Radio segment. And that is the insanity associated with show 150. I was contemplating doing an open house and a bunch of other stuff, but just two show recordings and extra audio, I think is going to be enough for folks calling in. I'm going to be heading to the UK. I think I've got one more show before I head to the UK. And yeah, brief period of time in the UK, but looking forward to catching up with the folks in Kent and just seeing a lot of the UK by train, which is always a pleasant thing, doing a bunch of other paperwork and nonsense, but at least getting to the UK. And yeah, so show 150, if you're listening to this and would like to call in, we have a little link that says participate on the Model Rail Radio website, which explains all the background of how you do this thing for calling in. My anticipation is that 150 will hopefully get a lot of callers, but also something that I'm doing is three shows out. I am putting up on the Model Rail Radio website what times and dates the shows are going to be recorded. So if you are interested in calling into Model Rail Radio, this isn't just some random thing. I don't just pick a day and like, hey, let's do a Model Rail Radio recording. No, I plan this thing out. There are dates. People can call in at specific times, this kind of stuff. So look at the Model Rail Radio website, and I will endeavor three recordings out, which typically is six weeks. You will see when the next recordings are going to be. And if you're interested in calling in, it's typically recorded on a Saturday. I should actually pick a couple of Sundays as well, because I did get very positive feedback about recording on Sunday. Thank you very much for the folks for calling in this evening. Thank you very much for the folks listening in. Good evening. Good evening. Night. See you next year, Tom. Yeah.